January 6th was part of that long story, but really it's a long story that is continuing. It's in its legal phase today. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Does the January 6th attack on Congress signal that fascism has come to America? Jason Stanley, a professor of philosophy at Yale, has been warning that Donald Trump and his followers have been employing classic fascist tactics to secure power. Denying election results, creating alternative realities, attacking science, even the assault on women's reproductive rights are all pages out of the authoritarian handbook. Stanley is the author of the 2018 bestseller, How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. His writing frequently appears in the New York Times, Rolling Stone, The Guardian, and other publications. Professor Jason Stanley, welcome back to the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. It's great to be back here. You see current events through the lens of history and precedents that have gone before it. So when you watch Trump supporters last January 6th attack the Capitol, what was what went through your mind? What larger story did you see being acted out? Well, I saw uh, I, I first of all saw the specificity and particularity of what we witnessed because we were all collectively as a country witnessing it firsthand from the election in 2020 on. You had some of us saying, this is what a coup looks like. And then you had a lot of denial. You had a lot of people saying, no, no, Trump is just act. He's just pretending. Uh, The Republican Party would never allow this. Uh, Come on, don't be histrionic. Don't be alarmist. This kind of refusal to see what was happening. Uh, What uh, January 6th was... Uh, was part of that long story, but really it's a long story that is continuing. It's in its legal phase today. Um, so, you know, on that day, I saw uh, I saw many of my fellow Americans uh, who were told by their commander in chief that the election was taken from them and they had to physically rise up. Um, so that was expected. It was uh, it was uh, a very violent showdown, but less violent uh, than I thought. The left did not show up uh, to uh, to counter protest, and so that we don't we don't know what would have happened. Uh, would the uh, ar- would would various uh, armed forces come in then and declare the Insurrection Act or something like that? We don't know. So there were there were a lot of you know, November to January 20th was a difficult time. And I expect that election periods in our country will look more like election periods in countries with highly unstable democracies. Um, like Kenya would be an example. Hmm. You wrote recently in The Guardian about how your father was raised in Berlin under the Nazis and how your family experienced uh, the normalization of fascism. Talk about what that looks like then and now. So there are uh, there are different, very different material conditions uh, in the two in the cases of Germany and the case of the United States right now. And we don't face something like someone like Hitler, who was a genocidal anti-Semite. 
Um, what we do face is an authoritarian, anti-democratic movement that it represents uh, represents its enemies as uh, as insidious, ubiquitous. Uh, uses conspiracy theories to say its enemies are you know harming its children, harming the children of the nation. Um, and what we're, what we're seeing is first a normalization of the rhetoric. We saw that a long ago, long ago. And now what we're seeing is we're seeing uh, the legalization of some of this. So it's, it's, it's not really Germany in the 30s. Uh, there was a kind of cultural normalization that happened there in the 30s. Um, but the legal, legal mechanism shifted very quickly when Hitler seized power. What we're seeing is a slow... Uh, a slow legalization of things like anti-protest laws. So if if the election in 2024 is seized and there are large-scale protests, large-scale protests are now illegal in many states. Uh, we're seeing uh, an attack on our education system where, uh, where whole works are being banned, uh, works deemed you know, dangerous to people like the 1619 Project. Um, we're seeing the uh, worst of all, uh, situations like uh, Georgia and Arizona, where the state legislature can appoint its own slate of electors, thereby enabling um, a, a a stealing of an election. And we've already seen the seizure, uh, takeover of the courts. Donald Trump lost by three million votes, the national vote, but one third of the Supreme Court are very young, hard right jurists. So, so that kind of normalization where you know, the minority dictates policy and everyone becomes acclimatized to that. Like, it's okay that the minority of the country is dictating the policy and preventing uh, things, imposing their will on everyone else. Um, so that doesn't, that's not a parallel between now and 1930s Germany. It's more of a parallel between now and what's happening in Hungary, uh, what's happened in Hungary and now Poland. Uh, which is why you see the Republican Party uh, avidly following uh, Orban and the Hungarian leaders. You know, just picking up on that theme of um, Germany, fascism rose in Germany in the 1920s at a time of great social and economic upheaval. Germany had lost World War I. The country was racked by hyperinflation. And then the global Great Depression happens. Uh, causing an economic collapse. Um, so in that turmoil, a strong man rises, Hitler. But why the U.S. now? Trump becomes president in 2016 at a time of relative prosperity. That's right. So fascism sometimes uh, uh, invades against phantom enemies <laughs> and, uh, and sometimes real. Um, Germany was undergoing great uh, difficulty and upheaval. Um, but the Jews were not to blame for that upheaval. So that was a phantom enemy. So there's a lot of myth and storytelling uh, in fascism. Now you do have uh, what, what I argued in uh, a recent piece in The Guardian is what you have in the United States is you have sort of a constant condition that a fascist politician could appeal to uh, as the kind of upheaval, as the kind of communist revolution analog. So in Germany, there were actual, you know, leftist radicals on the street trying to overthrow the government and pitched battles between leftists 
uh, and far, far leftists, the far left and the far right. What you have here are repeated, uh, re repeated black rebellions um, with violent elements that the right wing call riots and left wing call pro protests, but really we should think of as rebellions. And the pattern is very clear. There's police, uh, there's, there's longstanding sort of police brutality against the population. And there's one incident that sparks off massive protests against the massive over-policing and racial injustice. And then right-wing politicians can use that to say, look, they're taking over. There's a violent threat to the nation. Um, that's very parallel. Uh, and if you look at, uh, if you look at, so fascism thrives off crisis. You, you try to create a sense of crisis. So in 2015, you know, uh, we, had, we had Michael Brown, we had Ferguson, uh, in 2014, 2015, we had uh, we had Freddie Gray, we had Baltimore. Um, uh, in 2020, we had Black Lives Matter. Uh, these are continuing rebellions that you know you can object to them. Uh, you can say you know I don't think we should have violent rebellions in the United States, no matter what the reason, uh, and that's fine. But it's also the case that those are uh, propitious moments for someone to say. This is a crisis. You need a fascist to protect you. Um, we probably should have done this at the beginning, but it's always a good time to be reminded, what is fascism? And do you think Donald Trump is a fascist? Um, fascism is a cult of the leader who promises national restoration uh, in, in, in the face of supposed humiliation by minorities, leftists, immigrants, feminists, uh, and, and he promises, and LGBT uh, community, he, he promises that, uh, that only he can restore the, can protect the nation, protect its traditions from this threat and restore lost glory. So the parallels here to Germany are a series of imperial wars that we lost, which cost us enormous treasure, a sense of national humiliation, that's extremely parallel. Uh, militarization of the country in the wake of those lost wars. Uh, uh, so a general feeling of national humiliation. And then an internal enemy. Uh, a sense that there's an internal enemy, minority groups together with communists. That's what the Nazis said. They said, you know, there are these minorities, there are feminists, there are Jewish people, communists, and they're trying to take over. Uh, and, uh, and here you have a parallel history of, oh, the communists together with, uh, with black Americans are engaged in rebellion. And those are very parallel. And you can object to things, but a fa uh, so people can say, I disagree with these large scale, I disagree with the far left rebellions in the streets of Berlin. Uh, I disagree with Black Lives Matter protests when they become violent, um, but, uh, but, there are moments when a fascist politician can say our country faces threats from outside and within the threats are communists and minorities. <laughs> don't, don't you find that, you know, I grew up in the, during, in the cold war in the dying days of the cold war where communism had a name and a face. It was the Soviet union. It was China. There really is no, no real communist uh, place anymore. Communism has no meaning. 
for communism has no meaning. It's just an empty label. There's no communist threat in the United States. It's completely preposterous. There sometimes are is a communist threat. Actually, the Bolsheviks were quite vicious. <laughs> uh, you know, it made sense for Goebbels to say you don't want the Bolsheviks here. Um, here, you know, I mean, I I'm not a fan of diversity equity initiatives in corporate and corporations that are just silly. Uh, that that you know, I mean, I you know, I'm all for diversity, but I think there can be excesses of it. But to place that, to equate that to Stalinism is absurd. Uh, you know, Stalin killed millions and millions and millions of people. Uh, uh, so they're saying communism is, they're, they're searching around for something to say communism is, um, the, the authoritarian movement we're seeing. Uh, and, there's, uh, and, and they're banning it. They're banning it. They're, uh, they're Ill- making it illegal. Uh, to talk about in schools, uh, and uh, and they're inventing uh, they're inventing this threat that is not a threat. Another thing being banned right now is abortion, um, and we seem to be perched on the edge of a moment when more than half of the states will be outlawing abortion uh, in its in some form. You write that there is a connection between fascism and the attack on abortion rights and women rights. What is that? So, first of all, let me say that you can be against abortion uh, and not a fascist. You can be a social conservative of various stripes. Though we should be aware that you know uh, uh, the anti-abortion movement was not is not an inevitable outcome of being a social conservative. Social conservatives in the early 70s were not uniformly and against abortion. Um, so it's, but, uh, but it is a fact that, that fascists bring together social conservatives by saying we can deliver your goals for you. And one such goal, because the way, uh, one such goal is the policing of women's bodies. Um, so we face a situation where the majority of Americans do not want Roe versus Wade overturned, they want the uh, uh, they want abortion rights. Uh, the, this is uh, and and what we have is a minor- minority movement that seeks to impose by the force of law restrictions on women's bodies. Um, so there, you can certainly be a social conservative and not a fascist and think, you know, everything should be done democratically uh, and be against abortion. Uh, but all the fascist movements, the, the, the Nazis were harshly against abortion. Uh, in in fascist, fascist movements are, are patriarchal. So in fascist movements, uh, they celebrate uh, manliness, heroism, uh, war, the warrior nature of man, and women have traditional gender roles. And strict punishment for abortion was part and parcel of fascist policy. Um, you've also written uh, about propaganda, and I'm, I'm interested in your take on, you know, right now, Trump is a master of taking a tax against him and using it against his opponents. So he now claims that the idea that Biden won the 2020 election, that that is the real big lie. And two thirds of Republicans agree with him. So what classic patterns of propaganda do you see in the per- current political discourse from the right? Well, projection. You always know what they're going to do by what they say the Democrats are doing. 
it's it's just like it, that was also the case with with that that does seem to be a tactic of German fascism for sure. Uh, that is exactly what they did. They said they said the the uh, the liberals were always going to do what they you know the liberals were the ones lying in the media. Uh, so uh, so uh, the 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 projection of uh, the attack is always uh, is always done to mask the attack yourself. So Trump is a master at this. I mean, let's note that he ran against who he, someone he called crooked Hillary. <laughs> so I mean, you can literally invert uh, uh, what he what he what he's. I mean, you can literally take what he's saying and re- recognize that that is how he thinks of of himself. So, uh, so that that's we've we've got projection here as a central tactic in the politics we're facing. Um, it's a very natural thing to do. Um, you know, it's not new with with this. Uh, you know, co- you know, calling uh, calling it Operation Iraqi Freedom, invading the country. Uh, uh, you know, calling things the opposite of what they are is, you know, classic political propaganda, not not restricted to fascist propaganda. But what we have now is an almost comical illustration of the kind of 1984 war is peace uh, kind of thing. But what's not comical is that Trump is using uh, essentially swearing allegiance to the big lie as part of his political uh, power. Um, that is what you must swear to, the omerta that you must right, do. Because it's a, it's, it's a cult of fascism, is a cult of the leader. Uh, and so you're, you put your finger on an element of fascism. That's sort of how you recognize it, uh, that uh, theorists of fascism uh, from Hannah Arendt to, uh, to Adorno, the Frankfurt School always focused on, which is the connection between fascism and the mafia. Uh, so this is something that that fascism scholars have long talked about, that there seems to be a structure very similar to the underworld with the fascist leader being the mob boss. Um, so, you know, you ascribe to the big lie, you're already in it. And then, you know, how are you going to get out of it? How can you accept that you that you thought something so ridiculous? So. I don't know if you've been in this position, um, but how do you talk to somebody who believes in lies, be it about COVID, about vaccines, the election results? Is there anything that you've found that works to pierce this fog of unreality? Yeah, you know, I, I love this show, David, but I'd hate to say that if I had that answer, I wouldn't have time for this stuff. <laughs> the, the, uh, I mean, that is the, you know, that is the question. I mean, one of the big issues is why didn't, uh, Arendt says reality uh, sometimes, you know, is the way, to, you know, a, a hard dose of reality does it. Um, however, that's just not true. Uh, people, people believe, people wish that the things, the bad things that are happening aren't happening until the second they're in their living room. Um, so, you know, uh, we're seeing that every single day in emergency rooms across the United States with COVID. So, uh, so what will do it? Um, humans believe irrational things 
uh, and they die because of those irrational beliefs, um, completely irrational and false all the time, and they always have. Um, is there some way to get people to to see rationality? If there is, uh, let's we need it soon. What should the media be doing right now? There is a concern that uh, the media is missing the forest, the loss of democracy for the trees, the piecemeal dismembering of democratic institutions. Um, what do you feel that a pro-democracy media should be doing? Uh, I think we need a consensus in the United States behind democracy. We need a consensus that the kind of authoritarian push that that the the Republicans doing are doing is uh, you know you know has no place. We we need to protect democracy and figures like Liz Cheney uh, are essential. Social conservatives who are who are committed to democracy and the preservation of democracy uh, are uh, are essential here. Uh, and we need to be emphasizing those bones of democracy and the threat to the bones of democracy. Uh, nobody wins if we lose our democracy. So uh, I think, you know, the, the, there are huge problems we face as a nation, uh, but uh, focusing, uh, putting those problems, the threats to our democracy on our front page and saying like, you know, actually banning protests. These are it's really problematic. <laughs> um, uh, what? Where's the loyalty of our armed forces? Uh, what's our election security? What barriers do we have to the realization of our democracy? Those issues now should come to the fore. I hope, and they should, and we can look at. And I and I'd like to see local news getting more powerful because uh, you know I want to see people in small communities all across the United States, recognizing common humanity and differences, despite this common humanity, and local issues and seeing that democracy works on the local level and they should preserve it. How do you see the American story playing out over the next five to 10 years? Will democracy survive? Well, democracy is is not... Uh, you know, there, there's no, it depends on us, right? <laughs> it's our decision. So I don't think I can predict something where the predictions affect things. Uh, you know, we all have to decide together to preserve democracy and we'll always be like this. This is a particularly bad time. I think it's a particularly bad time, but we've been in particularly bad times before. Uh, I mean, the civil rights movement uh, advanced our democracy by pushing, by people going to Alabama and Mississippi and pushing for black votes. That's pretty, you know, that was kind of pretty scary. I would have done it in like Vermont myself. Uh, but uh, so we've been in bad times before. Uh, democracy is, uh, is something we strive towards. Um, you know, we might have an anti-democratic, autocratic, authoritarian minority system for the next 50 years, and then we could get out of it. We'll see. You don't sound very alarmed in that answer. Um, when I read your Twitter feed, I see a lot more alarm of sense of impending doom. Um, I, 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 I am extremely alarmed, but you know, I don't want to give this sense that uh, it's out of our hands because it's not. Um, it's not out of our hands. It's not too late to have a uniform consensus between conservatives, 
and progressives and liberals and libertarians and say, can't we all agree that our democracy should be protected? I don't think it's too late. Do you see the seeds of that you know, germinating anywhere? I do not. And that's where the alarm comes in. I think that's a good place to stop then. Um, Professor Jason Stanley, thanks so much for joining us again on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much. That does it for this week's Vermont Conversation. You can hear this and all programs at vtdigger.org slash vermontconversation. I'm David Goodman. Thanks so much for listening.